0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. The Bible tells us that we have here no lasting city, but that we seek a city that is to come, a city whose architect and whose builder is God. We're talking for these three weeks about the hope of heaven. If you were worshiping with us last week, you heard the amazing words of Jesus spoken just as he dies hanging on the cross to a criminal, likewise dying beside him. When he says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And we've got a little glimpse at what happens to us when we die. Today, we'll reflect on... Not just what happens to us when we die, but we'll look into the future and we'll see what God's plans are for the renewal of all creation. And next week, if you worship with us, we'll consider how the hope of heaven is to influence the way we live today, heaven here and now. But isn't it interesting that as we open up our Bibles this morning to Isaiah, who was a man who lived in the 8th century B.C., that we find... And someone who lived 2,700 years more before today, in our past, something we need to learn about our future. But there's something about Isaiah. He was a believer. He placed his trust in the living God and he lived his life on the doorstep of eternity. And God, through Isaiah, wants to invite me and you to live on that doorstep today as well. I don't know of any other place where we get a clearer uh, picture of eternity, of heaven tomorrow. So would you open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25? You'll find that on page 607 of our pew Bible. Kind of crack just to the right of middle and open up to 607 there. And Our text is Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. And if you're able, would you stand with me together and let's read this great assurance of God, which is for us today. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. It's the Lord speaking. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days. Or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Heaven and earth will pass away. Something that Jesus said, speaking of this very same passage, that the Lord would create one day a new heavens and a new earth. And he said, but my word, my word, the faithfulness of God will last forever. That's the word that you and I just read. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. Keep it open to Isaiah 65, because what you and I need to hear this morning is not a word from George, but a word from the Lord. And as we listen for that word, I want to uh, discuss with you three things, uh, terror, eternity, and hope. It seems to me when I think back 10 years ago to that Tuesday morning when I was on the East Coast, the attack of 9-11 was an attack on the future. I'm not so sure I could have articulated it that way at the time. But having 10 years to think about it, that's what I think it was. It was an attack on the future. And you might think, it's really hard to attack the future. Hard enough to attack things in the present. But I think that was the effect of what happened that day. Think back to where you were when you first heard the news and the thoughts that went through your mind. I was a young parent. I had... Young children, eight, six, two boys who had just been dropped off in a bucolic neighborhood, public school. Uh, A four-year-old daughter who was just experiencing all the hopes and anxieties of the first few days of nursery school. And I had gone down into my basement study to settle into some work. And... My wife, Anne, came down those stairs and tried to explain to me that an airplane had flown into a building. And the first thought that went through my mind was, This is the end of everything I've been working for. It may seem odd to you, but my life was wrapped around those three kids. And all of our energies went into providing for them health and safety. And at the end of the day, a future. That was what it was all about. And now I had to ask myself the question, what is this world into which I have brought these three precious children? And is there a future into which I willingly could entrust them, release them? And in that moment, I thought, I can't see it. So it was an attack on the future. Later on that day, I went to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology up the Charles River. So where I worked as a chaplain, and I met with students. Individually, large crowds, inside, outside, we gathered everywhere. And you remember that eerie silence of an airplane-less sky. And it was a clear day, as you recall, in Boston, in New York, and... We kept furtively glancing towards the heaven, especially across the Charles River, towards the John Hancock building. Waiting for the next thing that would crash among us. And I'll never forget sitting with one student in his small dorm room across from his large computer on the bed. And he was ashen. He had not yet heard from his sibling in New York City as was the case for many of our students at that time. And his name was Andy, Andrew, and this is what Andrew said to me. He said, I just don't know what this means for my work at MIT. And at first I thought, what does this have to do with your work at MIT? It was a strange thing to say, until I realized that he was experiencing the same thing I had experienced earlier in the day, that is an attack on his future. You see, I don't know any place that's more academically rigorous for four years of undergraduate work than MIT. It is a painful place. Many people are glad they went there. Few people are glad they are there. (laughs) And my friend Andy Malowitz had invested everything in getting to and staying in MIT. He had sacrificed everything. Why? Because he had envisioned a future in which all of that investment and sacrifice would have a payoff. A future in which his work today would be meaningful and valuable. But all of a sudden with this, the future seemed challenged. And he wasn't sure anymore if it made any difference at all whether he went to college of any kind. What's this going to mean? That's why I say it was an attack uh, on the future. There were 3,000 people who lost something very concrete and their families. But 3 million people, more than 3 million people felt they had lost something profoundly disorienting on September 11, 2001. You see, that's the way terrorism works. You, first of all, lose a sense of safety. I mean, it's kind of statistically improbable. I think we can understand that now that the same thing would have happened to three million people as we walked around in our normal Tuesday routines that day. But we all felt like an airplane could be coming right at us or our beloved ones. That's the way terrorism works. It makes you feel, first, unsafe. But then secondly, it challenges your notion of the future in everything I have sacrificed, and everything in which I am invested to realize that future. And on September 11th, I want to suggest to you that 3 million of us ask that question. What is my future? And is there anything out there that would withstand the trauma of this terror? What about your future? Unfortunately, it's not only Al-Qaeda that can raise this question for us. Unfortunately, this question comes up in every single one of our lives at the hands of the mere circumstances of what appears to be daily life. For all of us go through transitions that are beyond us. Old age, loss of a job, loss of financial security, An inability to conceive a child, a child who does not survive more than a few days, on and on and on. Every one of these terrors, be they small or be they large, there is a question, what about the future? Is there anything out there that is substantial that would allow me to live today with what I have to face? I think we're asking the question, by the way, of heaven I think we're asking, is there an eternity that matters today? Is there substance there? Well, that's terror. Let's talk about eternity, secondly. If terror is aroused with the circumstances of our lives that undermine our confidence in an intended future, what about eternity? I mean, let's look. If you look at the bulletin cover like I did this morning and did a double take, it saw September 11th, 2011, and felt re traumatized, kind of flashed back, almost in post traumatic stress uh, syndrome. It wasn't because, for me at least, I'm, I'm just concerned with the pains and sorrows of 10 years ago. It's because those pains and sorrows are reverberating through the pains and sorrows that I am experiencing today. Today. And it is in today that I need a perception of eternity that gives me hope. And the good news of this morning is that Jesus Christ offers that perspective to you and to me today. Isaiah is the prophet. He's the spokesperson for God in our text. And the future was under attack in Isaiah's day in as large or larger a way than it has been in ours Isaiah was a prophet who served some of the great kings of Israel. He had a long life, lived in Jerusalem, served in their court. At the beginning of his tenure as a prophet, Isaiah lived in a kind of a renewed heyday for Israel. It was a time of growing prosperity, increasing globalism, foreign trade and alliances, It was a time of increasing militarism. This was the good times for Jerusalem and for Judah, the southern part of the kingdom. And yet by the end of Isaiah's tenure, specifically by 701 B.C., all of that would be crushed. And Isaiah, this prophet of good news, would stand in the rubble of desolation and disorientation. The future had been challenged in his own day. A man by the name of Sennacherib, an Assyrian king, had come down from the northeast and had rampaged the villages and cities of Judah, had carried away more than 200,000 Judahites into captivity, had taken the wealth of the coffers of Jerusalem. I think more than 25 tons of gold, say nothing, of the sil- of silver. So they're bankrupt. Talk about recession. They're defenseless. And most deeply, they're without a spiritual hope. What had happened to the great promises of God for his city, Jerusalem? So they thought. But here's the thing about a prophet that I think you and I oftentimes misunderstand. Catch this. A prophet is not somebody who maps his life to the circumstances of the day or the hour. We think that's the case. We would assume that a prophet would be kind of like Nostradamus sitting in some wonderfully rich study with incense and dim lighting and... And it would take the newspaper and open it up or turn on the Internet and and read the stories of the hour and be able to see the relationship among these great tides and trends of current events and would be able to see what it all means. But that's not what a prophet does. Not a biblical prophet. A biblical prophet does not map to the circumstances of the day. A biblical prophet maps to the narrative of God's redemptive history. And it's real simple. If you don't want to read the Bible, I can give it to you in a sentence. Redemption, fall, oh, man, I botched it. It's not so simple. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. You better read the Bible. (laughs) Someone says amen. Our Sunday school teachers are all off working. Keep reading it. But this is the narrative. It's all about a God who loves existence into being creation. It's about a humanity who has broken covenant with a faithful God and destroy that creation and its beauty fall. And then a God who enters into the brokenness of creation, taking upon himself not just humanity, but sinful humanity, finding himself in the depths of our pain and alienation and horror, redemption. And then finally... Eternity, God who brings about a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, new creation. A prophet is somebody who understands the fixed points in that storyline and maps their day, their hour, their minute to that narrative, not to the circumstances of their day. See, and therefore, the prophet is somebody who could perceive solidity, a future that was solid that mattered today that would allow us to withstand the terrors of the dark. Now, I I want to um, look with you at at Isaiah 65. I I wish we had more time, but I just want to skate over the beauty of this depiction of eternity. Because, you know, many of us ask the question, what will heaven be like? Do you not ask that question? And don't you ask it with a little bit of reservation? You know, I mean... You go, I don't know about being up in the clouds. That just seems boring. Boredom is a big issue I get asked about all the time, right? Well, people say, oh, heaven, it's just like a prayer meeting, right? Well, I'm here to tell you, I have been in some prayer meetings that have seemed like eternity. I can't imagine about being one which actually is eternity, right? That's not ter- I'm here to say it's not terribly appealing to me anyways. Well, what about harps? You know, surely there are a lot of other instruments. And I don't mean any disrespect to Dale who did a fine job on this today. But can you imagine eternity with no electric instruments? I mean, come on. I know I can't sing without an auto tuner. Uh, what about our pets? Okay, Seattle. I get asked this all the time. Will my dog be there? I'm not going to tell you. Uh, (laughs) See if you get any hints as we read this text. Let's just look. Here's what eternity is going to look like. I'm about to create. I am about to create new heavens and new earth, he says in verse 17. The former things shall not be remembered. Not that we won't remember the former creation, but we will not remember its atrocities or its woes. Uh, so, therefore, in verse 18, we can be glad. We can rejoice forever in what the Lord is about to create. Its music will be joy. That will be the major note. That will be the tenor of life, tenor of life for eternity. Joy. Delight. In verse 20, we see something interesting about longevity. There will be no premature births. There will be no uh, tragic infant deaths. There will be no uh, death at all. In fact, in a society that has a lifespan of 30 to 40 years, to say someone will live 100 years is to say they'll live forever. And don't be confused by the fact of someone dying at 100, being cursed. This is poetic language because we know it said there will be no more sorrow. There will be no mourning. There will be no death. Isaiah has said so elsewhere as well. Notice this, that there will be uh, cultural endeavors we're not just going to be sitting on clouds. It says here, verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards. You know what that's for, don't you? You've got to plant vineyards, viticulture. This is culture of the highest order. And notice that the work that we engage will be fruitful. It will be deeply satisfying. One of the signs of judgment upon Israel was that you would build houses and somebody else would inhabit them, or you'd plant vineyards and never get to eat of their fruit. And here the prophet is saying, someday just the opposite. Everything you do, all of your work will be profoundly fulfilling and satisfying, and you will enjoy it, it says. And then we see, most significantly, a kind of a a spiritual immediacy. Verse 24, the Lord says, before they call, I will answer. Before you even dial up God uh, in prayer, he's got the answer on the way. Uh, Before, while they're yet speaking... I will hear. This is true all the time, by the way, but there is an immediacy. We will perceive this reality as we are in the presence of our divine lover. And then peace, verse 25. Wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The predator will knock it off. The vulnerable will be safe. The powerful, the lion, shall be satisfied and power will be used only for honorable, uh, joyful purposes. And the serpent, which reminds us of The fall, Genesis 2 and 3, uh, which is cursed, that curse will remain. In fact, the serpent will now evermore be innocuous, eating only its dust, because the curse has been absorbed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, just two observations very quickly about the, the, the quality of our life in eternity. And by the way, it's rich to fill our imaginations with such imagery The first is to notice that it is solid. It's a solid future. It's not in the clouds. It's not way up there. It's down here. It's a new heavens and a new earth. A renewal of both. Very much like our current existence, except without pain and with joy and these other things. I like the way C.S. Lewis envisions it in his rich allegory, The Great Divorce. And just one little snippet of that, you know, in Lewis's imagination, eternity is so solid that even walking on the grass is kind of painful. It penetrates the soles of your feet. And at one point, two characters are talking about hell. And one of the characters bends down and says, come here. And there's a crack in the mud between two little blades of grass. And one says, do you mean then... Hell's, by the way, where they come from in this allegory. Rode a bus up through that crack. Do you mean then that hell, all that infinite empty town, is down in some little crack like this? Between two blades of grass? Yes, the other one says. All hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than an atom of this world, the real world. Look at Yon Butterfly. If it swallowed all hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. Seems big enough when you're in it, sir. And yet, all loneliness, angers, hatreds, envies, and itchings that it contains, if rolled into one single experience and put into the scale against the least moment of the joy that is felt by the least in heaven... Would have no weight that could be registered at all. We think that our plan, that our purpose in life, is to get to heaven, and that's what the Bible is all about—getting people up into heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. God's purpose is to get heaven into earth, into our lives. This is exactly, this is not some Old Testament notion. This is the same vision that John sees in the great apocalypse at the end of the Bible, Revelations 21. You see, you're hearing the same language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Here's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, heard a loud voice. See the home of God as among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And then the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. So that's the first thing. It's solid the second thing is, follows right from those words of our Lord, seated on the throne, the Lamb of God, right there. And that, is, that eternity is a recreation of what is. It is to say it's not something entirely new, without any continuity to the age that we're currently experiencing. It's, it is continuous. There is, a, there is a link between the cultures of the earth and the material world, to the new creation, the cultures and material world of the new creation. Like a, a seed is to a plant. Like a mortal body is to a resurrection body. We tend to think that God has looked at earth and seen how we've spoiled it and said, I'm just going to throw the whole thing into the dustbin of eternity. And, and all I can hope to do is rescue some disembodied spirits for heaven up there. No. The one who made this creation and all of its materiality, the one who in his sovereign care is overseeing the cultural developments of humanity, the very best of them, loves it all. And he is going to renew it. What that means is, as Apostle Paul says when he reflects on the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. The things you do in this life, if they are mapped to the great narrative of God, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, those things will persist into eternity and will be a part of the renewal, what Jesus will renew. Now, there's good news and bad news in that. The good news is my work. The things that I do still has implication for eternity. The bad news is i got some things in my past I don't really want to reoccur. I don't really want them to reappear at surface. I've got some brokenness, some lonely times, some despairing times, some really ugly or dark and evil times. Jesus says even those things, even if you go through them right now, today, at this very moment, I will make those things new. I will give those things meaning in your eternity. Finally, hope. How do we respond to the solidity, to the renewal of eternity? Well, Steven Pinker is a Harvard professor, professor, um, and he recently wrote that the effects of terrorism... Listen to this. The effects of terrorism depend completely on the psychology of the audience. He's a psychologist. <laughs> You're always looking... For, never mind. The effects of terrorism... So you psychologists tell us that the effects of terrorism depend completely on the psychology of the audience. And I think he's right. He, he reminds us that terror refers to a psychological state, not an enemy or an event. What does that mean? That means that the terrorist needs your help. If a terrorist harms somebody somewhere and the people around that loss do not respond with terror, then the terrorist has not succeeded. He or she has not, in fact, even been a terrorist. That's what Steven Pinker is telling us. The terrorist needs your help. It needs you to indulge a psychological state called terror in order for him to achieve his vision of the future. And if you respond with terror, you and I are complicit in bringing about that future. I think that's why Jesus says, lead us not into temptation and thy kingdom come belongs side by side in the Lord's prayer. When we see the coming of the kingdom, we see something solid that will free us from the temptation to respond to evil with evil. And despair to enter into the disorientation of the terrorists. Hope is that thing that is solid, that resists the terror and allows us to live into not the terrorist vision of the future, but God's vision of the future. Biblical hope is very different from American hope. I mean, we in America use the word hope um, to mean uh, I wish. So if I say, I hope the Huskies win again next week, weekend, I do. I'm saying, I wish, but I don't know for sure. If I say, I hope it's not raining next weekend, I say, I wish. But biblical hope is not that. Biblical hope is a settled conviction that a desired future is coming. It's certain expectation. It's certain because it's based on the promise and character of God, not the circumstances of this life. We see this character of God in this text, the character of Jesus Christ. So richly, he's the creator about to create heaven and earth. It says at the beginning, it echoes Genesis 1-1. God creates the heaven and earth. He's invested. He made it. And then at the end, he's the redeemer. Verse 25, the climax is pregnant with implication. We don't have time to, to look at it all. But here in verse 25, we see echoes of two passages. Isaiah 11, 6-9 She talks about the wolf and the lion and not hurting or destroying exact quotations of an earlier part of Isaiah's message. And that whole passage is about a coming king who brings justice and peace. The other echo is of Isaiah 53, where we see here in our verse 23, it talk about uh, an offspring being blessed. That is the language Isaiah has already used in chapter 53 when he speaks of the suffering servant who was, we read, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It turns out in the fullness of time that these two are the same, the king and the suffering servant. They are God himself, taking upon himself the brokenness of this creation, to die in its death and to rise To recreate it all in newness of life. Helmut Tillich stood in the rubble of a church. He was a German pastor after years of bombing during World War II of Stuttgart. The great cathedral in which he preached was bombed between two Sundays. He was doing a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. One Sunday, we had a chapel. The next Sunday, rubble. And there he stood in his army boots without any religious vestments, they gathered in the choir loft of the church for continuation of this sermon series. And Helmut Tillich says, and you would think there'd be terror, uh, but there's hope. So here's how he begins his next sermon. He just begins this way. He says, isn't there a comfort, a peculiar message in the fact that after all the conflagrations that have swept through our wounded city, a sermon can begin with these words. We shall continue our study of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer can be spoken by everyone, he says, in every situation without exception. And we can see this with a special clarity in this hour as we gather together a little bewildered remnant of the congregation in the ruins of our venerable church and begin quite simply with these words, we shall continue as if nothing had happened at all. For if we take eternity... As our measure, what actually has happened? Is God any less the father than he was before? Do the overwhelming events which have just happened have no place within the message? Or are not these events themselves a message in which God sets his seal in terrors and woes, in destruction and fire? Upon what he has always been proclaiming in judgment and grace. That's a prophet's impulse to say we shall continue because we shall see the present hour in the great sweep of God's redemptive history. And a prophet can see it. John the Baptist was a prophet and one day his vision faltered. He was arrested soon to be beheaded, and he had been announcing the coming of this great king, Jesus. But he was now in prison, and he just had not seen the kinds of things that he was expecting to see when the great king came. Jesus was rather a disappointment to John the Baptist in this moment. And so he sends a message, are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? And Jesus sends a message back, and he says, Ask John what he sees. And and Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. Do you not see that the blind are receiving their sight? That the lame are beginning to walk? That the prisoners are being set free? Knowing that if John could see those things, and he was seeing those things, then the future solidity of eternity was breaking in right here and right now. We have an opportunity to experience that in breaking kingdom, Uh, if God wills, as we pray for one another. Prayer is an expression of hope. It's profoundly subversive. It prays against the trauma of today and invites heaven to pour the reality of God's grace into our lives. And uh, the apostles who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ never forgot that power And they understood that it had implication for the hurts of their lives. And so James writes in James chapter 5, verse 13. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And anyone who has committed sins, will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Our elders are here this morning, and they want to pray with you. And there's nothing special about them or the oil, except that God invites us to participate in a promise that he intends to honor. So as God would lead you, uh, you're invited to come forward. Uh, to be ministered to by one of our elders if you're not coming forward I would invite you to be in fervent prayer for the healing of those who do we are being accompanied by those who are worshiping with us through the radio in this hour and uh, many of our deacons and elders are going to uh, phone banks because uh, those will be calling on extension 757 to reach that group and We want to pray for you as well. I would invite our elders to come down uh, front and uh, stand And uh, pray with us. You may have prayer for physical healing. You may be suffering from an addiction. Whatever it is that is hurting in your life, come. Uh, You may be praying for healing in our church. And we have members from our uh, YMM, our youth community, who are here to pray for healing in that community and in our congregation as well. And we would invite you to come and pray for that. You may want to be prayed for someone in your life who's not here. But be a proxy as we anoint you with oil, and God will be close to them as he is to us in this moment. Uh, Come, let's pray together. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524-7301, extension 117.